It's about putting surfers that people are familiar with on unfamiliar surfboards. Growing up, like the most memorable moments in surf movies were always those pairings. Tom Curran on the Fireball Fish in Sumbawa and Beyond the Boundaries, all the sections of 5.5, five, 19 and a quarter. There are always these moments of like the surprise and a little bit of like mystery around these surfers riding boards that I'd never seen. Hello and welcome to The Drop. My name is Danny Johnson. The first episode of the Electric Acid Surfboard Test is live. This latest iteration stars Coco and Mason Ho, the most entertaining brother-sister duo in surfing, without a doubt. And it's the first ever Electric Acid Surfboard Test that has a brother-sister duo. The way it works, they have received 12 boards in varying shapes and sizes to test in Selena Cruz in Southern Mexico, some of the funnest waves you could pretty much ever imagine. And if you're not, a curr- if you're not currently a member of Stab Premium now, is a really good time to get yourself a subscription because if you, if, you subs- if, you sub- if you subscribe now, you will receive a limited edition electric acid surfboard test t-shirt as well as getting to watch the first episode and all the rest and everything else on Stab with that subscription. So this episode of the podcast, we've got Stab's editor-in-chief, Brendan Buckley, interviewing the man behind the film, Mr. Ashton Goggins. But firstly, let's get into some WSL news. And as a new feature on the podcast, I'm going to steal Cusp co-host and WSL post-heat interview master, Stace Galbraith. What is the WSL news this week? The big news out of the WSL this week, Danny, is that multiple surfers have decided to withdraw from the Lemoore event, which is the next World Tour contest in the pool. Yeah, Lemoore's contentious, isn't it? So who's who's withdrawn and, and what are their excuses? Julian Wilson and Sally Fitzgibbons are among the top names that have withdrawn and... I haven't noted any excuses other than I'm assuming fatigue. They both have had a big year. Sally's looking really solid to be in the top five to finish the year. Julian simply isn't. So he's kind of on that opposite end of the scale where they're both got the same goal in mind, which is Olympic gold. And with Sally being locked in, Julian essentially, unless he went on the craziest heater of all time, he's not going to make that top five. So they're both, I'm assuming, looking to save themselves for the Olympics. Fair enough. Who else isn't on the – who else has withdrawn from Lamar? Tyler Wright and Bronte McCauley have also withdrawn. Their spots will be filled by Alyssa Spencer and Katie Simmers and Sally's spot will be taken by Kira Pinkerton. All of those three young women have spent a lot of time in the pool and will certainly be a force to be reckoned with. Then over on the men's side, Julian Wilson is the only withdrawal at this stage. Uh, his spot will be given to Nat Young, and the other wild card will go to Michael Dunphy, a bloke who certainly earned his stripes on the QS and deserves this CT call-up in the, in the twilight of his career. You love QS Warriors, huh? I think everyone's got a bit of a soft spot for Dunphy. We all saw his emotion when he ploughed through the event at Manly in 2019, going all the way to a third. And I think that uh, he won over a lot of Australians just with his underdog fighting spirit. So, yeah, I'll be cheering for Dunphy. 
All right. Well, good luck for Dumpy. It feels like a lot of Australians are just dodging quarantine. Definitely understandable, especially given the limited amount of warm-up waves that all the surfers have been given. Now, that's not an excuse, but it's certainly something to weigh up when you're planning out the rest of your year. And what about pulling out of events? Uh, do you need an excuse? Do surfers ever, have you ever known surfers to fake injuries to, in order to get away with not showing up? Certainly have over the years. Uh, I think <laughs> when Br- Br- Brazil was at the start of the year um, uh, or, or conversely at the end of the year, I should say, plenty of surfers would just skip Brazil and go straight to Hawaii. Whereas now Brazil being at the start of the year and, and obviously world titles on the line, people are, people are still going, which I think in recent years that attitude's changed, particularly with the style of surfing that we're seeing. People are really keen to go to Brazil. It's often quite a fun beach break, and the last few years has been a firing right-hand barrel. But certainly in the early in the early aughties, yeah, that was one, one, yep. one event that sticks out for sure. I hear what you're saying. Lamore is the new Brazil. What else, what else you got? What other news you got? <laughs> It's not exactly WSL news, but I guess they have to be colleagues leading into the Olympics, and that's the news out of the ISA. They had their final event uh, to qualify surfers for the Olympics. And although it's pretty hard to follow, I must admit, there was one really exciting battle, and that was for the last spot for Japan, which actually went down to the final day in the men's side, and that was between Hiroto Ohara and Shun Murakami. Whoever placed higher out of those two would see themselves in the Olympics, which is obviously massive for both of those two surfers, obviously being in the home country of the Olympics uh, and with one spot already decided, given that Kanoa Igarashi secured that earlier in the piece. This battle was pretty exciting and that, that was taken out by Hiroto. He actually ended up making the final and Shun made the final before the final of the final. Wow. How um, confusing. Now, I don't really want to go through all the people that have qualified, but is there, any, is there any individual that just really stands out as an anomaly that's going to be surfing in the Olympics that you might have never expected to be there? I think so. I think, um, you know, a surfer such as Leon Glatzer from Germany, he's never really done too much on the WQS and now he's found himself up the top of the, the, the totem pole when he's off heading to the Olympics. So there's someone that's a surprise to me there. And then there's a few other names that have certainly been battling on the QS for a few years and almost deserve their time in the limelight just through sheer effort. And that's surfers like Billy Stammen, who will be representing New Zealand, and Ramsey Bookiam, who will be representing Morocco. Look, if there's waves, Ramsey is someone to look out for. Do you care about the Olympics, Stace? I'm undecided on that. I only care about the sports where... The Olympics is, is their only chance to shine. All the boring sports like people running or going for a swim, like all the sports where you're just watching people exercise, they're the Olympic sports. The ones you can only – they're so boring, you can only really watch them once every four years. And that's what the Olympics is for. Sports like surfing or, or even like tennis, they have world tours. They have their, their moment in, in the sun – every year so I just don't get what's the point of them being in the Olympics I agree and, and the, the board sports are all having I think identity crisis in that w- what way is it going to go obviously there's a lot of eyeballs on the Olympics there's no doubt about that uh, where surfing and skateboarding live 
in this world, I think is yet to be determined. It's awesome to see some of the lower rated surfers on our tours, the WQS, for example, getting a shot uh, because they ultimately, you know, they are the best in their country and they certainly deserve the chance to, to prove that. Um, will a gold medal ever be regarded as high as a world title? I don't think so. Yep, I'm with you there. Any other Any other news? Pretty much done there. There's always lots of little happenings, but they're the biggest of the moment. What about Geordie Smith? Didn't was Geordie Smith have mentioned? Geordie Smith has just undergone knee surgery for an LCL tear, so he will miss Lamore with a valid excuse. I think though he's still aiming for the Olympics, and it could have been an opportune time for him to get that quick tidy up and get ready for the big show. So you're calling him a liar, essentially. <laughs> I think I think uh, I'd be I'd be hard pressed to call anyone a liar, but I think it's good timing as well. I'll say. Thank you, Stace. Uh, speaking of the WSL, Stab was spoken about on the WSL's lineup podcast in their latest episode. Someone sent that to me yesterday. Thirty-eight minutes in or so. There's. They have a reader question where they're asked if they consider Stab a competitor to the WSL or not. And as part of the answer, someone from the WSL mentions that he thought Stab was overly critical of the WSL. I enjoy what they write, although I do, I do think, you know, there's an aspect that's that's any press is good press, and I do believe that. Um, the more people are talking about pro surfing, the better for us and for me personally. But I, I read a lot of sports media, and I have seldom seen a media outlet cover the sport that they love and specifically cover so negatively I guess is the word um, I, I feel like there, there's a way to have fun with it like you see Deadspin stuff like that I'm not saying that there's no place for for criticism in sports I mean it's everywhere but it, it does feel like a I think the question comes from the fact that most coverage WSL gets from Stab is negative which I don't think is true at least not from a statistical point of view, especially compared to other sports where uh, the media is, is ruthless and, and they've got so many outlets and avenues coming at them. Uh, and, but I, and I also think compared to other sports, they, they tend to avoid a bit of criticism just because they've been around forever and nothing about the organisations dramatically changes. And so everything's kind of been said in a way, people tend to focus more on the, the athletes or the drama surrounding the sporting moments more so than they do the institution themselves. And I think the WSL has talked about and spoken about in a like fairly critical way so much because it's constantly changing and evolving at a pace. I've, I've never seen it in any other sport or league, whatever you want to, however you want to define uh, these different sporting bodies and, and I feel like it's the media's role to talk about changes in a critical way or to, or just to discuss it anything or everything critically and yeah I mean like most sports if they they have set structure and they just they just barely change ever if they do change it's normally details in the rules or some little piece of technology small things that don't affect how the sport is played and surfing on the other hand it's it's like an insecure teenager just chopping away at its hairstyle and changing its its look every five minutes 
uh, like and, and you know surfing changes things like where the competitions are held, how many events in a year, um, how many waves count in a heat. It used to be three, now it's two. And then the rounds of competition changes a lot. Elimination heats, new elimination heats after round four and then bonus rounds and then there was a mid-year cutoff and now we've got end of year surf-offs and even the business model changes a lot. Who the WSL was targeting as an audience and how it manages its relationship with advertisers um, how many people in heats have that's that's changed a lot over years. It used to be big numbers like eight, and now it's then it went to like six, and then uh, it was four across the board, and now it's just a mix of four, three, and two people in every heat. Um, on this topic, can we please stop talking about Peter Druin inventing man on land surfing at the 77? Stubby's event in Burley that I just hear that at nauseam and I mean I'm sure he put on a memorable comp and and it was the first man on man heats so I'm not saying it's not notable but it's just talked about like it was everyone just talks about it like it's the most profoundly creative moment that we've we've ever seen on this earth and, and even the word inventing sure it wasn't invention like a, it was more of an innovation like it, you can't call that an invention like how did i mean peter drew how did you come up with this concept of man-on-man competition how, how did you think of that was it did it come to you in a dream or did you just happen to notice one of the other 800 sports in the world that follow that format um it's kind of the same as simon anderson and the invention of the thruster i, I don't could people not count past two in the in the 1980s there were twin fins around so why do we talk about putting three fins on a board like it was the invention of the telephone some i mean how is three fins such an impossible thing to consider people speak about that one as well like it's this leap of imagination that no one else could have ever gotten to and people say people say that he should have patented it but i mean can you even get a patent on something a concept so rudimentary. It's like, it's like trying to patent counting. It's like, no, I'm, I'm the only one that's allowed to count. See, uh, see here, I've got a patent. And if I had a patent, I would actually carry it around with me everywhere I went. And Simon's super mellow about it. He's not chirping about all the time. And I'm with him. He's not making a big deal of it, but a lot of people do. It was actually pretty great though that Simon invented the thruster and then went on to tour that year and just proved how superior it was by smoking everyone and winning himself a little world title there. And he would just, he was hiding his thruster set up as he was walking down the beach to paddle out in his heats and then just rinsing people. Uh, so anyway, back to the WSL. No one at Stab hates the WSL. And I don't think it's that overly critical in a particularly unfair way. We also talk about the WSL a lot. Uh, we cover it as Basically, it's every move with various articles. Mikey and Stace do eight-hour-long cusp episodes detailing every moment that happens in some of the events. Uh, we also yeah, – we dedicated an entire episode of this podcast last week to a WSL show when we had Dana White on, uh, which no one listens to, by the way. It, that was the worst numbers 
we've had on an episode, but we still tried. Uh, so what about all that stuff? I mean, there is a, there is a lot of WSL stuff to, to consider that comes across DAB channels. And I feel like there's potentially a bit of negativity bias going on here. Negativity bias is it's just that unfortunate psychological truth, that evolutionary mechanism that we've developed where we remember negative things a lot easier than we do remember positive or, or even neutral things. I guess, uh, you know, like it's just a survival mechanism that where negative things imprint on our brains in a much more lasting way. I guess we had to learn about scary things like saber-toothed tigers coming to eat us and our reaction, how quick it was and being able to remember it were our only means to stay alive. Whereas positive things don't imprint on your brain. They, they don't enter your short-term memory in the same way. So could be negativity bias. I don't know. Another thing, and I'm sorry I didn't actually catch your name, the, the person on the podcast who I'm weirdly responding to via another podcast, but we're, we're also critical because we love surfing and the WSL. And if our love feels like hate, uh, we're bad boyfriends probably, but also just hate is, it's pretty close to love because it implies caring, deep caring. You've really got to care about something to muster up enough energy to hate it. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's, uh, it's not caring at all. It's indifference. Speaking of Dana White, there was a, a fair amount of correspondence about that last episode. A lot of people were loving Dana. Uh, a lot of people who I don't think listened to it on the social, on the social comments were anti-Dana for whatever reason. But I did get this one email from a guy named Chris who was also pretty anti-Dana for some reason. He said, man, this Dana guy, good job sticking that one out, mate. That was rough. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. But I, I love Dana White. I don't really, I don't agree with that point there. I'm, all, I'm just fascinated by people who have no idea what you're going to ask them about. He probably didn't know how he was going to talk about surfing that afternoon when, I, when we spoke and yet he just had fully formed opinions locked and ready to go and, and ready to spray at me over the internet. And I would listen to a TED Talk if he had one. Uh, if I was married to Dana White, might be a different story. I'm not sure if I could handle that level of intensity while I was eating scrambled eggs and beans in the morning. But enough rambling. Let's chat to Ashton and Buck. Well, sorry, the intro. I'm not Danny Johnson. I'm uh, Brandon Buckley here with Ashton Goggins. Probably gonna sound like a heathen. I got a professional podcaster voice and now a nice narrator's voice with me. So uh, I feel like we should take this opportunity to uh, acknowledge the baton pass that's happened here lately, Buck. Looks like you've got a little baton you can pass me <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna. I feel, always feel like the Big Lebowski when I'm like, you mind if I roll a J? <laughs> I think it's nice. You know, it gives you something to focus on, let the conversation flow. Uh, so, Stab's new editor-in-chief, Brandon Buckley. Yes, hello, hello. So, Ashton Goggins. 
So this is the first big project we've done together. You've been in the States. I've been working on this with Sam in here. Uh, you have lots of questions. Yeah. No, it's cool <laughs> kind of seeing it all come to light piece by piece, especially seeing where it's at now. First one would just be, if you had to explain this project to an extraterrestrial, what would you say? Uh, it's about putting surfers that people are familiar with on unfamiliar surfboards. Um, for me, growing up, like the most memorable moments in surf movies were always those pairings. You think about like Tom Curran on the Fireball Fish and Sumbawa and Beyond the Boundaries, all the sections of 5.5, five, 19 and a quarter. There are always these moments of like the surprise and a little bit of like mystery around these surfers riding boards that I'd never seen or didn't know what they felt like. Yeah. And seeing the way they were riding them and trying to imagine what those boards felt like under my feet, it was always like what drew me into surf films. It was like the, the was boards and locations and waves and surfers. Um, and since like, you know, you think about all the movies that from the early 90s from five, five, nine and a quarter, Litmus into Thomas Campbell, uh, Sprout, you know, some of the sort of like early hipster movies that people think of as being like the ones that introduce retro boards. Um, I always wanted to take the sort of reverent approach that Sam and Stab took with Stab in the Dark, appreciating like the real like pinnacle of high performance shortboard design and do something that was a little bit more anarchistic, if that makes sense. Like it was just sure. like brought in like all of the like chaos and sort of like randomness, but also like pseudoscience of, of alternative surfboards and tried to see if there was anything to those things that was like really valid to at like the peak of performance surfing, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, that was a really rambling answer. I thought it was good. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool you mentioned Curran there. We actually, I think he's in Mexico right now. And I just assigned a little story about him and his approach to surfboards and all the weird stuff he does to like modify them. Mm -hmm. Apparently he's just been like putting a bunch more resin onto his rails for some <laughs> wild well, concept. Well, the same thing. That was like the first time I ever, the, like I always knew who Tom Curran was from like Channel Islands and like the Red Beauty and the Black Beauty. But then for me, the first glimpse of like Tom Curran being like a strange or like interesting character was that section of five, five, nineteen and a quarter where he's building that double ender off of an old Greeno template with George Greeno and Daniel Thompson's dad, Mark Thompson, while he's filming and little, yeah. little Tomo's like a baby. And he builds that little double ender with the hatchet fins with his mohawk and he's like surfing Kira or Greenmount or something. And you're just like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, I just imagine like the guy that's playing guitar in Endless Summer 2 and like has this like cruisy vibe and he just looks like this like feral animal riding these crazy boards. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's been the current that we all sort of grew up with now. It's like weird current. For we sure. didn't grow up with like Santa Barbara world champ current. We grew up with like eccentric current. Yeah, totally. So how does a shaper get chosen for this project? So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I feel like, um, we try to bring in just sort of the most accessible surfboard brands that you can sort of find anywhere so that people for the most part those brands are good at sort of bringing these more modernized or, or like sort of refined versions of alternative boards to the masses and I think that each year they'll introduce something pretty creative yeah. and with that I'm thinking about the Channel Islands, the Losts, um, the brands that sort of end up in most of our projects and we feel like because they are the biggest brand you know, like if you were doing car tests you'd want to see a Ford and a Toyota you know what I mean? Yeah. And then with 
the more obscure shapers with the smaller names, it's a mix of people who we'd like to see, people we don't feel like have been appreciated, specific board models that I want to see the surfers on, shapers who I feel like are like up and coming or haven't been given enough attention or have been underserviced by sort of surf media, um, surfboards or, or designs that I think deserve like a reappraisal or, um, or some sort of reconsideration. And then just new boards that seem exciting to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is a science that we're starting to, so, well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I feel like that is a process that we are starting to understand better and do a better job of, of making these projects where there's boards that sort of cover the full spectrum. So there's things that are really challenging that the surfers might be a little bit uncomfortable on or that look awkward on, and then there's stuff that they're completely foreign to, but I know that when they step foot on those boards, they're gonna like the way they feel just because of my sort of understanding of surfboard design and weird shit that I'm you know, interested in and seeing the way that they, those work and knowing the way that those surfers surf and the waves that we're going to. I feel like those are the three sort of like ingredients that you have. You have waves, the surfer, and the boards and coming up with a way to where all of those things work together to create either a surprising or challenging or like uncomfortable or epiphanic moment with someone either being frustrated by a surfboard design or surprised or like really enamored of something about a board that they wouldn't have expected. Cool. The boards, I mean, obviously are the whole of this, well, not really the whole pool, obviously you got Mason and Coco here, but one of the most fascinating things about the boards to me is like, it's one thing if you're shaping for stab in the dark, right? And you know, you're going to make like a 510, you're going to do your own little things and your own little theories going to kind of come to life in it. But with this project, I'd imagine shapers would like, almost have meltdowns or like you know be like far down one track and be like oh no maybe this isn't it and start a new board like do you hear stories like that from the shapers oh yeah i we have we have shapers so just like stab in the dark the shapers don't are never told for sure who the surfers are they are able to take their educated guess based on the information that we give them which is the surfers age height weight the volume of their standard shortboards and then we tell them where we're hoping to go although often that changes um, but yeah, shapers lose their shit trying to figure out who the surfers are because I do feel like in stab in the dark, you can, well, in stab in the dark, you can go one of two ways. You can just sort of stick to your guns and go, I've built these, this model shortboard for my best surfers on my team. And I feel like if I make that board in this volume, that it'll just go for that person. Or they can sort of obsess over exactly who the surfer is and what they would change on a model that they already have to suit that surfer. With the acid test, I feel like the shapers are trying to think of the surfer's particular nuances and style and thinking about what of their boards will complement that or look sort of appealing to the people who are interested in their boards. So when I think about somebody like an Eden, uh, I, should, I guess we shouldn't give like reveals, I guess it doesn't matter. Um, you know, when you have shapers as divergent as like Matt Biolis and Simon Jones, you don't expect them to build that similar of a board, but Oftentimes when we pick up the quivers, you're like, oh, okay, well, this is a round tail with a twin fin and a round nose. This is a round tail with a channel bottom and a twin fin and a round nose. And while the variations, might, if you were to put them next to each other, they look the same way you would look at a standard shortboard. You'd be like, wow, they look kind of the same. The boards couldn't ride any different. And that's always interesting to me that like these people have these expectations that like, oh, I'm going to make them a twin, a round pin, twin pin. It'll ride the way a round pin, twin pin does. And all those boards go different. 
um, for those surfers. So yeah, it's sort of a mixed bag of their approaches about whether or not it's like they just build their most sort of current avant-garde model or alternative model, whatever you want to call it, their, their, their most current fun board. Um, or they really dial something in for the surfer that they think it is. Um, and to mixed results. Yeah, I kind of envision it as a thing where it's just like getting late at night and they're just kind of looking at a board and they're like, you know what, like, nah, this nose is done. I'm chopping it. Or like, maybe a seventh fin would work good here. Like, we, we do have a lot of shapers say that they've built like dozens of boards before they pick the ones uh, that they want to send for the projects. So in the lead up to the, picking up these quivers, we'll start getting photos from shapers. Uh, I know that Matt Parker from Album, um, this is his second time in the acid test, and technically the third time because we have, well, I shouldn't say that, uh, when Matt Parker has built boards for the acid test, he's sent us photos of these sprawling quivers of different boards, different models, different volumes, different outlines, and then he lines them all up and decides which one he wants to send to the surfers. Um, Whereas some just build two boards and send them and hope they work. Um, but it's definitely, uh, a, especially right now with how backed up factories are and with how hard it is to get boards built, it has meant a lot of late night uh, efforts from shapers around the world talking their glassers and sanders and hot coders and fin box guys into working weekends to get these boards done for these surfers in the middle of like the biggest surfboard gold rush probably in history. So yeah, we cannot thank the shapers and the sanders and the glassers and the fin box guys and the people that box the boards and ship them to us so that, and that, you know, that make it so that they arrive without dings every time we couldn't do it without those people. And we hope that these projects in some way are a celebration of all the work that they do. Cool. Another thing I think about is like, you know, even just a super basic short board has so many variables and you change one of them a little bit, it's a completely different board. Do you feel like with this project, there's almost a sense of like, not even trying to figure out why a board works. You're just like, you know what? It just goes and I love it. Like, do you feel like that's a thing? Yeah, I do think that at a certain point, it's like there's no f sort of point of reference for them on certain boards when they get on them because they've never ridden anything even remotely close to it. So it ends up becoming trying to put together some combination that works similar to something that they've felt or that makes up for the confusion in like a sort of easy riding board. And a lot of times, or I guess I should say, let me say that over again, the surfers end up like really tweaking the boards with fins mainly based on how it feels. So you know, on this last acid test with Mason and Coco, and this has happened with Noah, um, it happened with Steph. There's always like existential challenges around like, do you put trailer fins in? Like what size quad fins do you normally ride if you ever ride them? Keel fins versus stand-up twins, like, you know, split keels versus standard quads, bonzers and twinsers and bonzer fives and bonzer threes, you know, there's like all these variations that are all after a certain feeling. Um, and a lot of times those surfers don't know what those feel like nor how to sort of like work with it. And so I think it's a lot of the surfers making adjustments and then sort of trying to wrap their heads around those new variables of these strange outlines and fin templates that they've never really encountered and trying to s compare that to their standard shortboards is a pretty long bow to draw. So they're, um, they're often just sort of like figuring it out like flying blind. Yeah, it makes sense. So three components, 
boards, surfers, waves. We talked a lot about boards. Why Mason and Coco? Mason and Coco. So Mason and Coco come from like a very storied family. You know, they've they've been exposed to like every generation of surfer through their dad and uncle, and through growing up on the North Shore. And so even though they've been like thoroughly like modernized surfers, Coco hasn't ridden really anything alternative for the past 12 years being on tour. And Mason, for the most part, has only ridden Mayhem Sports with the exception of like a Tommy Peterson Fireball Fish and an Al Chapman Gun, uh, which for the most part, I think are the only boards that I've seen him ride that weren't Mayhems. So for, for Mason, it was exposing him to all these shapers that he'd never sort of encountered. And for Coco, it was exposing her to all these different variations of fun boards and different styles of alternative boards that she'd certainly never ridden. And just knowing how good of technique that they have and how unique of a style and their ability to sort of like bridge genres in their style, that they, they, they know how to cross step, they know how to like do weird tube poses and you know, they can surf like buttons or they can surf like a QS surfer if they need to. Um, and I just feel like the diverse quiver for them would have been the most, it would been, they're two of the surfers that would be the most fun to watch on a crazy quiver of boards. Cool. And so why Mexico? I think Mexico is the best place ever to film these projects just because the waves lend themselves to like crazy repetition. Yeah, kids. Um, <laughs> I hope Danny picks up this audio. Just, like, uh, just hears the parade the rushing kids. in. Yeah. <laughs> Jack's just out there laughing. <laughs> um, I think for fun boards, the I mean, right points, especially for regular footers. I mean, when people look at their like fun board quivers, I think that they like dream of soft right hand sand points. They're just sort of like the lowest consequence, medium performance waves, and that. So, and, and also, it gives them like a million reps. I mean, going down to Selena Cruz on, a, on in between swells, they were surfing ten hour days and probably catching 150 waves a day on those boards. And so as far as just like time under feet and getting feedback from those designs, it's like the best place for them to really wrap their heads around it. And to also not, you know, to get away from crowds and with the hope of a real swell delivering like proper A-class waves for the best boards, which is always sort of what you hope for in these projects is that it'll sort of ramp up towards the end of them picking their favorites and then getting those favorite boards in the best waves. But yeah, I mean, uh, as far as Mexico goes, um, Las Palmeras, Josh Molcoy and David Ramirez, like the best guides you could have driving you around for two weeks with a truckload full of boards and a ton. I mean, between Puerto and Selena Cruz, there's like something like 38 point breaks or something like that. So we had a lot of time alone with those guys to just sort of surf just the two of them. And Mason had never, hadn't been down there since, well, Mason hadn't been down there since he was like a teenager and him and Coco hadn't been on a surf trip together in years. And so it just seemed like the best place for them to sort of spend time doing nothing but surfing together. Yeah. You know? Cool. Like no bullshit. Cool. When I watch a project like Stab in the Dark, I almost like for the, you know, weeks, sometimes months after I find myself almost like going back to being a 14 year old and I like start looking at all my boards again and like, oh, 
just like make a point to like ride all of them and like think like okay what one works the best here and I just get this like it kind of re-sparks this obsession yeah what do you hope people feel or take away from this project um I mean I think the real like sort of outward expanding like pleasure of being a surfer is that you that part of it is experiencing all these different sensations and boards you know it's not a baseball bat it's not a tennis racket you know there's not just sort of like a standardized thing that it does all these boards do something different and they're all based around different surfers and shapers ideas of what they want to do on a wave and to me that is like where real like artistic expression in surfing comes from is from shapers building boards that are that sort of like physical expression in a you know an object that they wanted to do what they want the surfer to do and then the surfer being able to pick that up and take that and make sense of it and then translate that into like riding a wave that we all oh, this is sounding so fucking purple god <laughs> Well, no, I think that there is, like, I think there's something unique to surf culture and to surfing that I'm sure it's, like, cars, you know what I mean? There's, like, if you're really into cars, you wouldn't just buy, like, the most current, like, you know, whatever, like, performance sedan. If you were really into cars, you'd want to know what a Volkswagen Bug felt like or, like, a Ford F100 or a fucking Humvee, you know what I mean? There's, like, all these different, like ways to move through the world if you want to do it if you want to go in the mountains or if you want to go fucking drive in the desert like with surfing i feel like conditions and locations dictate designs and influence designs and seeing shapers from all around the world take these different like ideas that people have come up with and translate them and put their own spin on them and then find shape and then to find surfers that they work with to develop those boards I feel like that effort is something that like we all get to enjoy once it's been done. And it's what makes like the surfing experience like fresh every time when you go out and you have that moment where you've paired a board that you don't really understand, but you think it's going to go good in these types of waves and you have those conditions and you paddle out and you have that moment where it all clicks together. That to me is like one of the most beautiful tiny victories in surfing that like keeps me wanting to like go look at new surfboards and order custom boards and like, you know, geek out about bottom contours and the number of channels in a bottom and fucking, you know, rail shapes and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I do feel like there, like, are these kind of vessels where ideas are communicated. Like, even when we're on that stab high trip in Costa Rica, that we had that Christian Fletcher board there. And I remember, like, first few waves, I was trying to figure it out. And then I had one where I just realized it wanted to go so fast down the line and just hunt air sections. I was like, this is what Christian Fletcher is trying to tell me. Like, I fucking get it. I remember someone telling me that, like, the great thing about books is that it's the closest thing that you can have to, like, a real, like, internal conversation with someone. Like, you're, you're able to, like, sit there and, like, try and understand what they're trying to tell you because they've taken the time to do this. I feel that way about surfboards, especially when they're shaped by a surfer. Like someone like Christian Fletcher, who like, when you stand up on that board, like you said, like that information, like you know that all of his thinking and every wave he's written and all these ideas about his, you know, the way he does airs and the way he wants his board to feel with a concave deck, you know that all that stuff went into him sitting there and spending that time building that board. And like when you stand up on it, like if you fucking know, you can feel that. Like if you didn't know who Christian Fletcher was and you just stood up on that board randomly, you'd be like, this is cool. But knowing that it adds so much like cultural capital to that experience, you're like, oh, this is like, this is what Christian Fletcher wanted me to feel. You know, that's sick. Yeah. 
uh, and that's how I feel about a board when I, when I stand up on a board from Mayhem or Britt Merrick or any of these guys. I'm like, oh, this is like Britt Merrick talking to Bobby Martinez for two years after Bobby Martinez went and rode one of Nate Fletcher's quads and trying to come up with this design that does what Bobby wants it to do and then finally arriving at it and then designing it. And then we get to go and enjoy that and see like, oh, this is what they wanted us to feel. This is what they wanted it to feel like. And to me, going into it with that mindset, I hope that we're able to give enough information in, the, in these movies so that people have that context to really understand what it is that they're writing, to really understand what it is that they're writing, to really understand what it is that they're writing, to really understand what it is that they're writing, to really understand what it is that they're writing. Thank you, Ashton and Buck. The first of five episodes is now live and there will be watch parties. Uh, around the US so if you're in the US check out stabmag.com for details on where you can be a part of little electric acid surfboard test watch party thank you for listening and uh, see you next week with 20 something experimental boards in 14 days at southern Mexico's dreamiest sand bottom points It's not in my top three, but it's very fun. It didn't suck. Actually, you know what? They feel super shitty. Not in my top three. You're so mean to everybody.